Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to episode number 15 of Audio Judo Does Jazz. I'm Matthew, co-host of the Audio Judo podcast, the parent show to this not-so-limited series spin-off podcast. Both Audio Judo and Audio Judo Does Jazz are proud members of the Pantheon Podcast Network. If you're interested in any genre of music, please check out Pantheon. I guarantee you'll be able to find something that interests you. Please go to pantheonpodcasts.com for a full list of their offerings. On this episode... Chris throws the net a little wider and talks about jazz collaborations. I have yet to listen to this episode, but it sounds to me like this could be a pretty packed episode, as I feel like almost every jazz artist out there collaborates at one point or another with another great jazz artist. Let's see what he has to say about it. Here's your host, Chris. This is the 15th of my planned 16 podcasts to introduce all of you to jazz. It would appear that we are coming to the end of our journey into this music. In each episode, either Matt or Kyle from Audio Judo has referred to this as a limited series. Well, that was the original plan. The original plan had meant taking some time off, getting some proper research in, and coming back to you in a year's time with some fresh new episodes for a second season. But Matt based on the response that we've received from you, has suggested we continue this ride. That is all due to your interest. And so, I would like to thank every single one of you. You've been great, really. I want to thank each and every one of you for coming by. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, I won't be creating an episode every two weeks like I have this season, but we should come up with about one a month. That will allow all of you to catch your breath and perhaps pick up a few records here and there. If you want, you can check out our Audio Judo Does Jazz Facebook page. Currently, it has about 90 songs of the day at this time to sample and see if they offer any directions you'd like to head in. Or 
Perhaps you could listen to any or all the preceding podcasts for a second time. Unlike some of the better television shows of the last couple of decades, I can't promise that they get any better. I doubt that there are any Easter eggs I planted, but you never know. There is, somewhat, of an ongoing podcast on Max Roach, I think, since I've mentioned him in about every single episode. Give any or all of them a listen. I imagine you have a better idea of what you like and what you don't after all these episodes. Because the original plan had been 16 episodes, I'd imagine an episode celebrating my love for the piano. The idea of the episode was to be so dense with information that it would tide you over for a year. I figured, A, everybody loves to hear a good piano player, right? And B, you could trace the history of jazz if you just listened to about 40 to 50 pianists. The effect would have been rapid fire with album recommendations, amusing anecdotes, and enough of a history that gave their mention in this podcast meaning. You would have heard the entire episode performed like Billy Joel's We Didn't Start the Fire, like a 40 to 50 minute version of that song. But when I got to the end, I couldn't rhyme anyone's name along with Rock and Roll, The Cola Wars, I Can't Take It Anymore. So I scrapped the whole thing. Maybe someone will leak a bootleg version of that podcast online someday and blackmail me with it. But there are more important things in life to concern ourselves with. So instead of that monstrosity, I'll be leaving the comforts of the 1950s and 1960s jazz scene behind. I'll be learning right along with you about one of the giants of today's jazz scene, Kamazi Washington. If Charles Mingus and Rasan Roland Kirk represent, for me, the history and tradition of jazz music, Washington, to the best of my knowledge, represents the present and future of where it is going. In this first season, I discuss artists I know a lot about. In some cases, I have a ridiculous number of their records, and I've had years to figure out what they represented to me. After this episode, it's going to be a whole lot of discovery on my part as well. I'm looking forward to the next phase of this podcast. Bud Powell on piano playing the song Fine and Dandy from the album Sonny Stitt, Bud Powell, J.J. Johnson. This episode is going to center on the idea of collaborations. By definition, a collaboration is the action of working with someone to produce or create something. Now, outside of solo performances, you can argue that every single performance by a jazz band, or any band for that matter, is a collaboration. But the collaborations I'm talking about are more singular clashes or meetings or encounters that happen just the one time. So why do an episode on collaborations? Collaborations are collisions of lives moving in different directions. These collisions co-create something new, something that wouldn't have had a chance to exist were it not for the new chemistry created by this newfound, albeit temporary, relationship. There are going to be nine albums I'll be discussing with you, and hopefully just the right amount of detail to lure you in. While there's no single narrative, as in other episodes, this episode contains some characters you have already heard about. There's a little bit of me filling in the gaps going on, and this episode is also a good excuse to talk about records I haven't mentioned yet. 
that are just as essential as any of the records I've already recommended. The first album of our collaborations episode is simply entitled Sonny Stitt, Bud Powell, J.J. Johnson. Sonny Stitt is one of my favorite saxophone players, and he will be discussed on three of the records in this episode. Bud Powell plays piano and is often regarded as the greatest piano player of the bebop era. J.J. Johnson is that rare bird who innovated on trombone during the bebop era. The title of the record is a bit of a misnomer, since the three don't actually appear on a single track together. Instead, the album consists of two separate sessions. One, a late 1949 quintet session with Stitt, Johnson, John Lewis of the Modern Jazz Quartet on piano, Nelson Boyd on bass, and Max Roach on drums. The second session is from early 1950, a quartet date with Stitt, Powell, Curly Russell on bass, and again, Max Roach on drums. It looks like Max got shortchanged, as he should have been in the title of this record as well. Essentially, this is a bebop summit. It would not be a stretch to say that you've got a decent-sized fraction of all the most important musicians of the bebop era on this record. It's only missing Bird, Diz, Miles, Fats Navarro, Kenny Clark on drums, and maybe a few others. If you're looking for the next place to go after you've listened to your first Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie records, this is the place to go. Personally, I prefer this record to theirs for several reasons. Stitt just sounds better. It is still debated as to whether Stitt had been inspired by Parker or if he already had his style down around the same time as Bird. Regardless, they definitely come from the same source. They drink from the same well of inspiration. I don't know if Stitt has better engineers or producers, but this record just sounds better. Furthermore, Bud Powell is on fire on this recording. When you look up Powell's discography, you're going to come across albums called The Amazing Bud Powell in several volumes. According to all the jazz guides I've come across, these are the so-called best recordings of Powell's. But I don't fully agree. I've tried a couple of those amazing records. Perhaps my ears are a little off, but I like this one a lot more. I don't have as much to say about J.J. Johnson. My experience with listening to the trombone is lacking. At times, especially in a larger ensemble or a big band, the trombone is highly effective in spurts. Mingus absolutely knows how to utilize a trombone in his ensembles. One thing I can say is that Johnson keeps up with Stitt, and that's saying something, as Stitt is amazing. The next two albums feature Sonny Stitt as well. The next collaboration album I recommend is Dizzy Gillespie's For Musicians Only, recorded on October 16, 1956. If you like a high level of technical musicianship, if you like sped up, rollicking, rapid fire music, if you like the drummer hitting that ride cymbal with incomprehensible speed and precision, if you like horns trying to outrace each other to the finish line, then you will love this album. If you're more of a ballad person, if you prefer nuance or mid-tempo songs, if you seek out music that elicits feelings other than exhilaration, this might not be the album for you. The album features Dizzy Gillespie on trumpet, Sonny Stitt on alto sax, and Stan Getz on tenor sax. While Diz often played with Sonny, and played often enough with Stan Getz, this is the only time that they ever played together on a session. The rhythm section consists of John Lewis on piano, Herb Ellis on guitar, Ray Brown on bass, and Stan Levy on drums, 
which might also be pronounced Levy. Stan Levy's son, Bob, recalls, The story behind this, from my dad's point of view, is that everything was done in one take. No second takes. No overdubbing. He thought, hmm, a date with Stan Getz. Should be pretty laid back. Well, nothing could be further from the truth. The count-offs were breathtaking. It was virtually a live, real bebop session. Nothing worked out. Just play by the seat of your pants or get off the bandstand. Like it or not, that was the way it was with Bird and those cats. The real thing. No pretense. While I hear Ray Brown on bass chugging along and Levy pounding out that beat, all I really hear for 8-12 to minutes on each of these four songs are the horn players, and they sound like they're having the time of their lives. Now, Sunny Side Up, our third album, recorded a little over a year later, is another special record. On this album, Dizzy and Sonny Stitt are joined by perhaps the greatest saxophonist of the day in 1957, Sonny Rollins. Thus the pun in the title of the album. There's absolutely nothing wrong with Stan Getz's playing on For Musicians Only, but Rollins takes this album to new heights. In 1956, Rollins had the opportunity of creating magic with another tenor sax player in John Coltrane on the song Tenor Madness. To my ears, it's not all that mad. It's just two guys playing. Decades later, Rollins remarked that he didn't play his best on that session. So when faced with another contemporary on tenor sax and Sonny Stitt, Rollins rose to the occasion this time. The first track, On the Sunny Side of the Street, is a fine rendition. It's no better or worse than any other version of the song. It's fun. Dizzy's vocals on the song are fine. It's an opportunity to stretch their muscles before they get into the real heavy lifting. The second track, The Eternal Triangle, is the real jewel on this record. It's thrilling. It's everything Tenor Madness should have been and more. If you want to listen to two of the best sax players who have ever lived going for it, you gotta give The Eternal Triangle a listen. Stitt solos first and Rollins second. They trade fours for a while and outside of a couple of honks backing the guys up, Gillespie isn't really heard until the nine minute mark. That is Sonny Stitt and Sonny Rollins vying for dominance in a cutting contest on record. They're trading fours in the song The Eternal Triangle from the Sunny Side Up album. Don't ask me who is who, it's hard to keep track. And what would be the point of knowing? Everybody wins in this contest, especially us. The third track is a blues called After Hours, and it sounds exactly what the title implies. It's for everyone who's had a rough day, who might have a drink in their hand, who might be at a bar or possibly alone at home. It's fantastic. I particularly like the initial setup by the rhythm section in this song. Ray Bryan on piano, Tommy Bryan on bass, and Charlie Persip on drums. The final track of the album is called I Know That You Know. 
Maybe there's no pressure on them. Maybe there's added pressure and they ramped up their game. But everyone is playing freely on this one and sounding, again, like they're having the time of their lives. I'm going to say the exact same thing later on in this episode. But if you only pick up one album I'm covering here in this Collaborations episode, I highly recommend that you pick up this one. And the other eight. But mainly, this one. Let's step away from Sonny Stitt and head back a few months to April 8th, 1957. Much is made in the liner notes for this fourth album, a blowing session, of a group of musicians who found their way working in and out of bands around this time. They played in Dizzy Gillespie's Big Band or with Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, with trumpeter Art Farmer, or eventually with Miles Davis's band. If there's one obvious flaw in my Audio Judo Does Jazz podcast so far, and by my count, there's only this one. It's that the history I cover is only made up of a couple of dozen guys in a certain era of the art form. My only response is that these are my guys, and this is the era I enjoy the most. I will rectify that issue in the next episode and in the future. Johnny Griffin had a date set up with Hank Mobley in another Battle of the Saxes session, a marketing idea popular in this era. At the time, Griffin had been a member of Art Blakey's Jazz Messengers, a group I will definitely do an episode on in the future. Hank Mobley had been a former member of the Jazz Messengers. At the time, trumpeter Lee Morgan, not yet 19, and pianist Witten Kelly had been playing with Dizzy Gillespie's big band. Paul Chambers of Miles' band plays bass, and Art Blakey himself rounds out the personnel. Apparently, on the way to the date, Johnny Griffin ran into John Coltrane and asked him to play in the session. So what you get is a kind of magic. This is one of the greatest jam sessions that you will come across. Naturally, with a blowing session, where everyone can relax and play something everybody knows, there are two standards. The way you look tonight, and all the things you are. The two other compositions are Johnny Griffin originals called Ball Bearing and Smokestack. For me, the best tune on here is The Way You Look Tonight. It's one of my favorite jazz standards, and this version is played at breakneck speed. This is, after all, a Johnny Griffin date, and he had been dubbed the world's fastest saxophonist. My sister Carrie loves the original song, but maybe not this version. I remember her dream was to have had Harry Connick Jr. sing the song at her wedding back in the day, which actually had about a millionth of a percent chance of happening since my brother worked for Harry at that time. I'm sure there are plenty of great vocal versions of the song, but this is my favorite version. I'm a jazzer, what can I say? The Way You Look Tonight, from Johnny Griffin's album, A Blowin' Session. Until the end of the song, 
that's virtually the last time that you can tell that it's the way you look tonight. Even at 19, Lee Morgan can keep up with the three tenor saxmen. Reading some of the original liner notes, it's hard for me to fathom that John Coltrane is viewed as the unconventional one. But that's the gift of listening to him years later, after all the sound and fury of criticism is behind him. Not long after this, Lee Morgan would join Blakey's Jazz Messengers. He would appear on Coltrane's seminal album, Blue Train, just a few short months after this. Griffin had just come back from playing with Monk for a couple of weeks, and he would join Monk again in 1958. Coltrane, of course, would play a while with Monk in the summer of 1957, before rejoining Miles Davis's band. Mobley would eventually play with Miles in the early 1960s. And all these collaborations produce some of the finest music I've ever heard in my life. A friend of mine recently asked me what I believed. Is art objective? Am I a Kant believer? Or am I more like Hegel, who thought it was subjective? Now, I don't know the first thing about philosophy. I've heard the names Kant and Hegel, and I know that Kant wrote a book called Critique of Pure Reason that I've never read. But when it comes to these two concepts, in regards to the art form of jazz, I think the enjoyment of most all of jazz is purely subjective. I've tried my best to exhibit the idea that I'm not going to tell you what you should like and what you shouldn't. I'm sure what I like doesn't exactly mesh with what your tastes are. And that's okay. No one's ears hear exactly the same things in music because we've all experienced so many different things in life. I've even tried to show that I don't like everything that the critics espouse as the landmarks that are handed down from Mount Olympus. Many times, I've not been ready for them. And sometimes, I just like to rib Bill Evans because he disappointed me so often. But I do think there are some objectively gorgeous pieces of work that everybody can get down with. And I'm playing several of these treats on this episode. On several occasions in prior episodes, I've mentioned that I would cover Oliver Nelson's album, The Blues and the Abstract Truth. Nelson recorded several albums prior to this record, but this is the jazz album he is most known for. What a stellar cast of players. The original album cover listed the names in degrees of importance, I guess. Who's number one? My old arch nemesis, Bill Evans on piano. Roy Haynes is on drums. Eric Dolphy is on alto sax and flute. Oliver Nelson, which is kind of odd that the leader of the album is fourth on the bill, plays tenor sax. Paul Chambers, once again, on bass. Freddie Hubbard on trumpet. And poor George Barrow. The guy plays baritone sax on the entire record and doesn't get billing on the cover for some reason. The first song on the album is called Stolen Moments. It's just one of those songs that gives me a reason to do a collaborations episode for the podcast. If you come away from this episode thinking, I like that song, I'd like to hear it some more, then I'll have done my job.
Outside of Bill Evans and Paul Chambers' presence on this session, this song is what makes me think that this album has a direct link to Miles Davis's Kind of Blue. I think it fits right in with the other songs on that record. The second song on the record is called Hoedown, a song originally written by the classical composer Aaron Copland for the ballet called Rodeo. I've got to imagine most of you have heard a version of this tune before. The first time I heard Oliver Nelson's version of the song, I recognized it from listening to Emerson, Lake, and Palmer back as a teenager. That was a glorious few months. But really, what a great song. Most of the rest of the album is a good excuse to listen to Eric Dolphy and Freddie Hubbard play. If you remember, this session took place right in the middle of Eric Dolphy's very busy 1961 dance card, where he showed up playing with everybody. Still, Nelson acquits himself nicely on tenor sax. He and Dolphy played together on two other records, Scream in the Blues, a year prior to this, and Straight Ahead, which was recorded a week after this. I can't really fault Bill Evans' playing on this record. I especially like his work on Cascades, which is track three. If you're going to give Bill Evans a better shot than I have, I would recommend some of his other recordings of this period. Explorations, recorded just a few weeks prior to this, Portrait and Jazz, and yes, why not, everybody digs Bill Evans. If you enjoy those records, just know that hundreds of thousands, if not millions of jazz fans, would agree with you. If you want to hear more from Freddie Hubbard of this period, try Hubcap, which was recorded a couple months later, or Ready for Freddie. Nelson himself would go on to greater fame in the later 1960s and 70s, composing and arranging for television and movies. A few years after this record, he became involved with Sonny Rollins' recording of music for the movie Alfie. He would go on to score music for the television series Ironside, Columbo, and my favorite show when I was three or four, The Six Million Dollar Man. Very Special from the Money Jungle album, a collaboration between Duke Ellington, Charles Mingus, and Max Roach. Due to an interesting confluence of events, two classic collaborative albums involving Duke Ellington had been recorded in a matter of nine days' time. Whether by design or due to circumstance, Duke Ellington's run on the Columbia Records label coincided with his recording with different artists in the early 1960s. He'd already recorded albums with Louis Armstrong, Count Basie, and Coleman Hawkins. Now, it had been suggested that he record a trio album with Charles Mingus and a quartet date with John Coltrane. Mingus had played with Ellington before. For a grand total of four days, apparently, Mingus had played bass in his Greatest Inspirations band in 1953. Then, depending on who tells the story... Either a racial slur or a musical argument led to the appearance of a switchblade in trombonist Juan Teasel's hand, and eventually an axe in Mingus's. Mingus had been let go. Nine years later, after years of success and an upcoming engagement at Town Hall on the horizon, Mingus recommended Max Roach for the drum chair. 
The two had played together many times beforehand and even began the debut records label together. Without any rehearsals, they recorded about half Ellington classics and half sketches of songs Duke had come up with that morning of September 17, 1962. Well, tensions flared and Mingus actually left the studio because he had had enough. Again, depending on who you talk to, it was either due to Max Roach's playing, which is phenomenal, but maybe Mingus heard or wanted something different, or perhaps because none of Mingus's compositions were considered. I offer that it might have had a little to do with the growing tensions of that upcoming town hall show. And, if you recall from an earlier episode, it didn't go well. Eventually, Ellington brought him back in, and they finished the recording. To my ears, this is the finest piano trio record of all time. Ellington is on fire. Mingus makes his presence felt, pulling the song in his direction as much as he can. And Max Roach does what Max Roach does. He just makes the drumming more interesting than pretty much any other drummer out there. They don't always sound like they're playing together, and that's part of the charm. Sometimes they're playing at each other, like they're trying to tell each other something through their instruments. Regardless, this album is perfect. Now, I'm not an Ellington scholar, but I hope to be one someday. Several writers and critics have stated that Ellington had never quite played like this before or since. It's got to be due to whom he played with. Keeping up with those two firebrands from the next generation of jazz definitely lit a fire inside him. Even the outtakes, which were released on CD 30 years later, are incredible. If you pick up at least one album based on listening to this episode, try this album, Money Jungle. But still, you might want to try the other eight as well. In a Sentimental Mood, from the Duke Ellington John Coltrane album, one of my favorite songs from this record. Now, historically, John Coltrane's ballad era of 1962 into early 1963 has not been my favorite period of his. After this, he recorded an album simply called Ballads, and another record with singer Johnny Hartman. For the tenth time, I'm just not a fan of men singing on jazz albums yet. Recording more conservative material, perhaps, had been a way to ward off all the critical responses to the material he recorded with Eric Dolphy live at the Village Vanguard in November 1961. As you may recall from the Eric Dolphy episode, what the two of them had been playing in order to further explore the boundaries of jazz had been narrow-mindedly labeled anti-jazz by critics, as if they didn't know what they were doing. I'm happy to say that this encounter with Duke Ellington created an incredible record. While all the tunes are Ellington's, and he plays piano on all the songs, this is a John Coltrane record through and through. Again, recorded nine days after the somewhat tumultuous session with Mingus and Roach, I think Ellington decided to take a back seat on this recording. Perhaps all the drama, or perhaps his own playing on that record, wiped him out. 
Coltrane, on the other hand, is uncompromising in his artistic approach. He doesn't color outside the lines of Ellington's compositions. He just makes them richer. He is joined by his bandmates Jimmy Garrison and Elvin Jones on half of the songs and records with Ellington's rhythm section of Aaron Bell and Sam Woodyard on the other half. A couple of tunes that he records with his guys, Take the Coltrane and Angelica, are basically trio recordings without much in the way of piano being played. There are also two gorgeous ballads, In a Sentimental Mood and My Little Brown Book. I now look forward to listening to those other two records, Singer Be Damned. Just as Kinda Blue is an all-star album in 1959, and The Blues and the Abstract Truth is an all-star album from 1961, Andrew Hill's Pointed Departure is another all-star album in 1964. On this record, Hill, who plays piano, has Joe Henderson playing tenor sax, Kenny Dorham on trumpet, Richard Davis on bass, Tony Williams on drums, and once again, Eric Dolphy playing alto saxophone, bass clarinet, and flute. This album is recorded just a month after Dolphy's album, Out to Lunch, and just a couple weeks prior to Dolphy heading out to Europe with Charles Mingus. If you end up liking this album, I would recommend you listen to Out to Lunch and vice versa. They have a similar approach, which stands to reason since each session has Dolphy, Richard Davis, and Tony Williams. As I said in the Eric Dolphy episode in regards to Out to Lunch, while many critics view this album as a masterpiece, it might not be an easy first listen for you. It's one of those where you're just going to have to trust me, trust the players, and trust that, as a listener, you're capable of appreciating a lot more than what you might have already heard. Refuge from Andrew Hill's Point of Departure album. If you're more into the freeform, wilder sounds of jazz, if you'd like to know where to go after you discover great artists like Eric Dolphy and Ornette Coleman, here is the final collaboration I'll be discussing, Conference of the Birds. The album is led by bassist David Holland and recorded on November 30th, 1972, which just happens to be my wife's birthday, as it turns out. At the age of 20, Holland helped support numerous jazz artists who played at Ronnie Scott's Jazz Club in London. He hooked up with other English musicians like John McLaughlin, John Sermon, and others before Miles Davis caught him playing in 1968. Ron Carter had left Miles' band after six years or so, and Miles liked what he heard in Holland. Holland would play with Miles through all those early attempts at jazz fusion. He played on In a Silent Way, Bitches Brew, and a small section on the Tribute to Jack Johnson record. It was through Miles where he hooked up with Chick Corea on piano. They soon formed a short-lived band with Barry Altschul on drums and Anthony Braxton on reeds called Circle. That band established a long-time working relationship between Holland, Altschul, and Braxton, as they would record throughout the 1970s and beyond. In the case of Conference of the Birds, the collaboration is with saxophonist Sam Rivers. Rivers is another member of the 1960s free jazz explosion. He had played with a very young Tony Williams when Williams was just 13. 
It was Williams who got Rivers a temporary gig in 1964 in Miles Davis's band before Miles hired Wayne Shorter to play sax. He recorded numerous high-quality post-bop recordings for Blue Note in the 1960s prior to meeting up with Braxton, Holland, and Altschul. In the first episode of the series, I mentioned that I understood how difficult it was to even know where to begin with jazz because there are oceans of albums out there waiting to be discovered. Well, there are oceans of Anthony Braxton albums made all by himself. He's one of those guys where I've merely dipped my toes into the pool because I didn't know just how to handle him. I guess I attempted to find things that might sound familiar to me. He recorded a wonderful album in 1987 called Six Monks Compositions. He recorded a tribute album to Lenny Tristano called Eight Plus Three Tristano Compositions 1989 for Warren Marsh. If I recall, my friend Lil Hedda always liked the song Lenny's Pennies on that one. And then he recorded an album called The Charlie Parker Project in 1993. So I'm making inroads, but I'm with you. There's so much out there. Anyway, the Conference of the Birds album reminds me a lot of Ornette Coleman's The Shape of Jazz to Come, in that everybody sounds like they're pulling the music in their own direction. It is a true collaboration. Also, there isn't any piano on the record. If you're not terribly fond of Ornette Coleman's music, there are two pieces that are just beautiful. One is called Now Here, Nowhere, and the other is the title track, and it goes a little something like this. This wouldn't be a podcast if I didn't at least make a small social-political comment. It's kind of obvious, but I think it's only through collaboration that we're ever going to get things done for our country. There has to be something both sides can agree on. There has to be some path that moves us forward through this miasma choking the air out of this country. We've gone well past tragedy and found ourselves in stupidity. Just as in growing up, you need to find friends who attract you who you admire, who help you to become the best part of you. We need to find people on each side of the aisle who we admire enough to want to be around. We need to find role models to aspire to. We need to find those people who bring out the best parts of ourselves. Which provides me with a nice segue into the people who I've collaborated with in making this podcast. I literally would not have been able to make these episodes what they are without any of you. I'd like to start out by thanking my wife and kids for having patience with me and freeing up large chunks of time to let Dad do his thing. We all need time to do our things. I'd like to thank my friend Scott for being my own show consultant, going down all the rabbit holes with me. I'd like to thank my audience for listening. I don't know if I would have made it this far without your desire to hear what I have to offer. I'd like to thank Christian Chapansky for all the wonderful artwork he did on the podcast. That's something I never would have even imagined would be so cool. I'd like to thank the Pantheon Podcast Network 
I don't know exactly how everything works, but it goes without saying that I wouldn't exist without you. Finally, I would like to thank the team at Audio Judo. Randy, Kyle, and especially Matt, without whom this whole thing wouldn't exist. Thank you for all the technical expertise, for everything that's produced, for all the hard work in helping me sound like I know what I'm doing, for all the encouragement, for all of your friendship, and for giving me a chance to send my voice out to the world. God bless all of you. All of my love, Chris. Wow, so many great names there. But being a drummer, I'm going to focus on all those great Max Roach connections. He's an unbelievable drummer. To address what Chris said at the end there, uh, I want to take a second to thank him as well. Obviously, we couldn't have done this without him, as this is his baby. I'm grateful for his adaptability with schedule changes. I don't know if anyone knows it out there, but we are on opposite sides of the country. And coordinating every one of these episodes is no easy feat but he has been flexible and understanding. Thanks for your incredible expertise and knowledge, your ability to convey your message. I've always loved your writing, you know that, and it's no different now. But mostly, thanks for your friendship. You are one of my oldest and dearest friends, and I'm glad we found a way to communicate our love of music to a bigger audience. If you want to get a hold of us at Audio Judo, there are numerous ways. The website is www.audiojudo.com forward slash AJDJ. You can get a hold of us on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash audio judo does jazz, at Twitter, at audio judo jazz, or you can just email us at jazz at audio judo.com. For a direct line to Chris with your questions or comments, email him, chris at audio judo.com. Also, if you are interested in finding some non jazz music to listen to, give our original podcast, Audio Judo, a try. You can find more of that at audiojudo.com or anywhere podcasts are podcasts. Thank you guys so much for listening.